Brethren, we have been talking about this remarkable subject of the sovereignty of God. And as I confess to you at the beginning of this, I say it again, this is a subject that is far more vast than what we're really going to take the time to unfold. But what we did at the introduction of the study is we looked at some of the key terms that we find in Scripture that are sometimes translated as sovereign in the English translations of the Bible. The two principal terms, and there are many terms that speak of the monarchy, power, and authority of God, but the two principal terms that we considered are, first of all, dunamis, which speaks of the idea of a king's power in the case of referring to God, And also the word despota, which speaks of a master who has authority over a domain or a dominion by virtue of his owning that domain or dominion. As we went through these terms and talked about their implications, one of the things that we talked about, and I think this is an important thing to remember, is that this truth is an offense to the natural man. The natural man does not want to hear that God is sovereign because that then means he isn't, that mankind is not sovereign, that he is not autonomous, that he's not self-sufficient, and he's not self-authoritative. This truth helps us to understand that the potter is the one who is sovereign and is therefore the one who is truly free, but as for the clay... We're the slaves of sin. We're in bondage to our own sin and corruption. And instead of deserving mercy, we deserve the very condemnation that we and our sins deserve. Thomas Watson said it well, the Puritan Thomas Watson. He said, we cannot deserve mercy because we are polluted. Nor can we force God to show mercy, for then it would not be mercy. If God should show mercy only to such as deserve it, he must show mercy to none. Putting it another way, if God gave every member of the human race justice and no mercy, all would be in hell. This is why it is important to acknowledge and understand that the fact that even one member of the human race is redeemed, that is a miracle of mercy and grace. More than that, the fact that there are many, as John says in John in Revelation chapter 8, that there are so many, it's beyond human count, who will be redeemed in glory. That is truly amazing grace. To the child of God, this is our joy, our comfort in knowing that our God is sovereign and that he has redeemed us for his good and glorious purposes. We then talked about what this means for the servants of this great and glorious king. We talked about Psalm 110. We spent quite a bit of time in verse 3, which talks about the willing nature, the the joyful and willing nature of the servants who serve under King Jesus. And we considered how it is that Spurgeon, I think, rightly says that voluntarism, again, the principal word in Psalm 110 and verse 3, is the idea of servants, the servants of the king being willing or voluntary in their servitude. He says voluntarism is the essence of the gospel. He, that is God, would not have compulsory slaves to grace his throne, but free men who, with gladness and joy, should be willing in the day of his power. This is what a child of God is. Someone who willingly and joyfully serves God. The fact that we are the children of the king Not just servants in his courtyard, but now children in his household. This is a privilege beyond our comprehension. 
You know, when David contemplates the sovereignty of God and he considers the beauty of God's sovereign omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, he bursts forth with this expression and says, How precious also are thy thoughts to to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. David is just enveloped in the joy and contemplation of God's goodness and his sovereign care for David. And he's saying, thank you, Lord, for the fact that you're in control of everything, every aspect of my life, even the final day of my life on this planet you've ordained. And so I can trust you for everything. But this morning, I want to narrow our study and focus to the subject of Christ's sovereignty over his church. Now, some may say and think to themselves, well, my goodness, of course, he's sovereign over the church. If he's sovereign over everything, then the church falls under the purview of everything, right? But the reason why I'm going to give particular focus and attention to the subject here this morning is because Scripture does that. God is sovereign over all things, but the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over his church is something that is repeatedly emphasized in Scripture, and because it is emphasized in Scripture, we need to consider that emphasis and contemplate the implications and import of that truth. The implications, I think, are many, um, and there are several that we consider But when we really consider the reality of the fact that Christ is sovereign over his church, this has implications over the manner in which we conduct ourselves in the local church. It ought to govern the way in which we conduct ourselves in the local church. It also should have governance over the manner in which we witness to the lost of this world. And in relationship to that, It also helps us to think about how we're to relate to those who are installed as governing authorities in not only this nation, but throughout the world. Lord willing, we'll cover these things. And so really, our study is going to be broken down in the following way. First of all, we need to consider the fact that Scripture does in fact emphasize this truth, that Christ is sovereign over his church. I just want to establish that fact from Scripture so that you know this is, this is something that the Bible teaches. Again, it may seem like a very rudimentary principle, but I would just suggest to you that we need to look at what this idea uh, conveys in Scripture, and then we'll consider it the implications of this truth, which one of which will be our second point. We'll consider together in our second point how Christ's sovereignty, when rightly observed, purifies the church. If we don't really understand who owns the church and who has governance over the church, that's going to affect the purity of the church. And so this is a crucial principle. We'll consider this as well as our second point. And then thirdly and finally, we'll consider how Christ's sovereignty, again, when rightly observed, impacts our relationship with the world. And this does impact our evangelism, and it even impacts a subject that has been a hot topic of late. You may not be aware of this, but this has been a debated matter recently on the internet, uh, a subject called Christian nationalism. And by the way, I even wrote on this, if you had the chance to read the book uh, Jesus Justice, um, I addressed some of these things in that book. So if you recently read the book, it might be a little bit of a review to you in that regard. But this is an important subject. We have to understand what our relationship with governing authorities is and what it isn't. So again, we'll consider that again with the time that we have before us here in our in this hour but let's begin with this fundamental truth of the fact that Christ is sovereign over his church now in order to get to that truth to get to that biblical teaching i want to take you back to something that i mentioned briefly in a sermon uh, a couple of weeks back and somebody i was asked if i feel like i've settled in here 
yet? And I, I answered and I said, yes, I do, except I do get a little bit of uh, hazy because I have moments of recollection where I, I'm thinking to myself, am I repeating myself here or is this something I preached uh, six weeks ago or eight weeks ago in my previous church? So I am having a little bit of a, a moment, uh, senior moments in that regard. But um, I do remember mentioning briefly, it was kind of a, a brief caveat, where I mentioned how it is that Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, with respect to the body of Christ, that we are to be subject to one another. And then he says, in the fear of Christ. Now, at the time, I mentioned the fact that that's really a remarkable statement, this idea of serving in the fear of Christ. You oftentimes see churches <coughs> engage in promotional efforts and even marketing efforts to try to, to spread the word regarding their church and their ministry. I wonder how many churches have ever used this expression as a means of communicating to others what they're all about. I mean, imagine meeting somebody off the street and saying, yes, uh, we're Sovereign Grace Bible Church, and you know what we do? We serve one another in the fear of Christ. I don't know that that's really would be a popular thing, but mark this. This is a biblical concept, and it should not seem alien to our senses. But we need to ask the question, why is Paul talking about serving one another in the fear of Christ? And by the way, the word fear in in the Greek, phobos, you know what it means in the English? It means fear. So don't let anybody for a moment think or imagine that we um, have some sort of a translational issue here. No. When Paul is talking about this idea of serving one another in the fear of Christ, he is by inference reminding us of teaching that he has already supplied regarding the magisterial authority, the sovereign magisterial authority of Christ over his church. And this idea of serving one another in the fear of Christ therefore has this orientation of remembering that whatever I do in the body of Christ is beneath his ultimate and sovereign authority. Now to give you the context of Ephesians 5.21 briefly, I want to bring you back to the contextual reality of what you have in Ephesians 5, and by the way, I've, I've heard it said, and I agree with it, Ephesians is one long sentence. Everything is connected, trust me. But if you want to get to the more immediate context of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5, he was talking about this idea of our walking in love as beloved children. In other words, God has loved us. It's kind of like First John. We love because he first loved us. Well, as those who have been beloved of God, we're to walk in love. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, as those who are beloved by him, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I've often referred to Ephesians as an epistle of love. The word love, agape, is used 18 times. Paul repeatedly talks about this. He prays for the Ephesians in chapter 3 that they would know what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. This is a strong and repeated emphasis in Ephesians. And so he calls us to walk in love, really a call of the foremost commandment, loving God first and loving our neighbor. And so in a sense, he's helping us to see and discover what this looks like. If we're really following the foremost commandment, loving God and loving our neighbor, this is what this looks like. And so in the 15th verse of chapter 5, he says this, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now this is the fifth in five commands. Paul just jettisons five commands in these verses. The fifth and final command that he gives is that we are not to be filled, that's the fourth, or not to be drunk with wine, that's the fourth, but the fifth is that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he describes what that looks like. What does spirit-filled living look like? 
Well, he gives us five participles that describe what spirit-filled living looks like. And so he says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And then he says, and this is the fifth and final description of what spirit-filled living looks like, and being, that's the participle, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now that's the context of Ephesians 5.21. But really, fear? Yes. But it's not the fear of the ungodly. This is not the fear of those who stand condemned, because we're not condemned. We're the children of God, and we're no longer condemned because of the righteous merit of Jesus Christ. So we have to ask the question, what kind of fear is this? Again, it's not the fear of condemnation, but it is the reverence and adoration of a child to the Father. You know, the Puritans repeatedly spoke of this idea of filial fear. Filial fear. And I want to introduce this. If you haven't broached this subject, this is an important subject the concept of filial fear. This is the very fear that Paul is talking about. Our God, our Lord, he is sovereign. He is far above us beyond our comprehension, and he is to be reverenced. By the way, if you don't have reverence for God, then that means you're irreverent, and that is not to be found in the bosom, in the heart of the child of God. We're called to reverence our Lord. Godly fear must never be confused with those who fearfully and disdainfully flee from the Lord out of their enmity with him in view of his coming judgment. Instead, filial fear is an expression of adoration, love, joy, and worship as that which is given to the Son in view of his matchless worth. That's why in Psalm 2, it speaks of the Messiah, the Mashiach. In these terms, it says, worship the Lord with what? Reverence. And rejoice with what? Trembling. These are not adversarial concepts. I have joy in my heart in view of my salvation. I also reverence the one who redeemed me. These are not conflicting things. These are things that go together in the heart of the child of God. And so such filial fear draws us closer to our Heavenly Father as his children, or as John Bunyan rightly says in his treatise of the fear of God. By the way, um, if you haven't had the chance to read Bunyan's treatise on the fear of God, I'd encourage you to get it. You can get it online. It's an excellent, excellent work. But he says of this fear, this reverential fear of the child of God for the for our Heavenly Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, It is that spirit of grace that is the author, animator, and maintainer of our filial fear, or of that fear that is sun-like, and that subjecteth the elect unto God, unto his word, and his ways, unto him, his word and his ways as a father. This is key. We have to ask this question, serving one another in the fear of Christ. Well, this then brings us back to the concept of Christ's magisterial, sovereign authority. You have to ask the question, when did Paul bring this up? He brought it up at the very beginning of Ephesians, and it was a part of our scripture reading. Because in that text... Paul is praying for the church, and he's saying saying this with regard to his prayer for the church. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and did what? Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's Psalm 110 and verse 1. 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Again, Psalm 110 and verse 1. And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that is the anchor that Paul dropped at the very beginning of this epistle so that we would stay there and know and understand that this is then the the truth that governs everything else that he teaches in the epistle. We serve King Jesus. And he is seated at the right hand of his Father in the heavenly places. And this is his monarchical role and authority. By the way, this is why I invested the time in just surveying portions of Psalm 110. And this is one of the reasons why I told you that Psalm 110 in verse 1 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And here we have it. This is a declaration, a reminder, really, from the Old Testament. This is a reminder to us of the co-regency of the Father and the Son who share all rightful power, authority, dominion over everything. And especially with respect to the church. Because the church, unlike the world, and unlike the governing authorities of this world, The church, uniquely, is his body. The people of God, the church, this is his own body. As his bride, we are one with him. And so how do we serve one another? We serve one another with the constant view of King Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And what that does, as we constantly think of him, that produces within our hearts reverence for everything that we say and do, reverence for him above all. What does this then look like? Well, it looks like the man who preaches in the pulpit preaches not his own thoughts and ideas, but the words of King Jesus. What does this look like in the lives of deacons and overseers? It looks like deacons and overseers honoring Christ by the standards not of oral traditions or of this is the way we've always done it, but by means of God's word. This means, therefore, that we are to practice the one another's, serving one another. The reciprocal pronoun is really the governing idea there in that last expression there in Ephesians 5 and verse 21. We're serving one another. Reciprocity is the concept there. So we love one another and serve one another without any deference to one person over another. This is the foremost commandment. If we love God, then we're loving our neighbor, and we're not a respecter of persons in that servitude to one another. The idea of reciprocity means that I serve all within the body of Christ, and I don't exclude any people just because I don't, well, I don't prefer them. So what else does Paul say as we talk about this idea of serving under the sovereignty of Christ? What does this look like in marriages? Well, then Paul extends this discussion, and basically Ephesians 5.22 on word is basically a further expansion of this idea of serving one another in the fear of Christ. For to serve one another in the fear of Christ, and that means that I serve my wife as her head, Ephesians 5.22-33, and she serves me as my helpmeet who submits to my authority. An authority that is not my own, but it is ordained by God such that I am called the head of my wife. I'm to sacrificially serve and lay down my life for her. What does this look like in the home? It looks like children obeying their parents. How? In the Lord, for this is right. And in a world that had masters and slaves, the Apostle Paul enjoined masters to give up threatening 
knowing that both their master and yours, he says, is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Again, this is the foremost commandment. And then he gets to the battlefield of the world in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, reminding us of the fact that we fight not flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, knowing that our king, our commander-in-chief, is the one who goes before us as the one who defeated and conquered sin and death. Brethren, knowing that Jesus Christ is the sovereign king over his church affects everything. Absolutely everything. Knowing that we're his possession, knowing that we're his body, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, knowing that we're his bride, as he reminds us of in Ephesians 5, knowing that he sacrificed himself for his bride and that he endeavors in order to sanctify her. And how does he sanctify her? By the cleansing of the water with the word. With the word. Dear people of God, how are we sanctified and cleansed? It's by means of his word. When Jesus prayed in John 17, he prayed, Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's it. Not my opinions, not the oral traditions of men, not the philosophy and ideologies of this world. God's word alone. You know, it's interesting that the Lord Jesus Christ as the king of kings, he frequently rebuked the Jewish leaders because they were exalting the traditions of men and were thereby doing what? Nullifying the commandments of God by their traditions. And we must guard against this very problem. If we really understand that Jesus Christ is the sovereign ruler and owner of the church, then we will serve him by no other authority. This then is our second point. Christ's sovereignty, the knowledge of Christ's sovereignty, purifies the local church because if we really understand that Jesus is the king and he's sovereign over his church, then we're going to go by no other rule book than by his. And this does, in fact, have a purifying effect. I just mentioned the Pharisees who elevated their oral traditions to the point of elevating them to the point of the Word of God. In fact, there's one oral tradition that was codified in the Mishnah, which declares that, that those who do not regard the oral traditions of the Pharisees on a par with Scripture have no part in the afterlife. In other words, they're going to hell if you don't observe and regard our traditions. That's how far they elevated the traditions of men. And that's why Jesus repeatedly rebuked them for their oral traditions. You know, as a kid, I uh, I loved making models. I, mom and dad would get me a plastic model. I loved building the Corsair, I think it was the F4U, plane from World War II. I don't know why I was so infatuated with this plane, but they'd get me one of these models or, you know, a battleship or whatever. And I had a really bad habit. I would take these models, crack open the box, and the first thing on top of the box inside were the directions. And I would take the directions and toss them, and then I would proceed to try to build the model based upon my own sense of intuition of what seemed to go together. And if you were to survey my bedroom back then and see all the models that were hanging from the ceiling, you'd start to observe and notice that some of these, some pieces are missing. Why? Because while I was so eager to put the whole thing together and I threw the directions away, I, I started putting things together out of order. 
And so I wouldn't be able to put all the parts together as the design of the model had instructed me to do. Or sometimes I'd glue together pieces that didn't belong together. Now these are just pieces of plastic. And this is the foolishness of a child. But when men who are tasked to serve as under-shepherds of Christ's church, when they take the instruction manual and toss it, at any degree, to any extent, this is nothing but blasphemy against the king. Because this is his church. It's not mine. It's not anyone else's. And we're called to serve one another in the fear of this king, in the reverence and adoration of this king. Brethren, I say to you, whenever error is tolerated or promoted in any professing church, you will have as a result a spirit of license that breeds within the church and that leads to further problems It only takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump of dough. And we have to remember that even just tearing off a little bit of the directions and tossing them is not a good idea. You know, the book of Jude is a stunning book to read. It's shocking to the senses to some extent because it exposes human depravity in a way that is alarming, I think. Jude himself was alarmed because even though he wanted to write on the subject of our common salvation, which is a wonderful and beautiful truth, he heard about those who had crept into the church and were promoting error. So he stopped what he was doing and he decided to, he chose to, by the leading of the Spirit, to confront these errorists. What were they doing? Well, they were turning the grace of God into licentiousness. He said that they were like unreasoning animals, in other words, individuals who just operated on their own impulses, and that they had gone the way of, mark this, Cain, Balaam, and Korah, all men who had a veneer and appearance of religion. Cain offered sacrifices, though God did not accept them. Balaam was religious. He was an idolater. And Korah, who was counted as as a leader among the people in, in the religious community of Israel, opposed Moses, God's ordained leader among the people. Yes, all these men were religious, but they were a blasphemous affront to the Almighty. Their religious appearance was just enough such that they were able to creep in unnoticed, Jude says. They crept in unnoticed. You know, the fact that they crept in unnoticed is a testament to the fact that they well disguised themselves. In other words, if you were to meet these people, they would be talking about Jesus and they would be talking about the church and salvation. But at the end of the day, they were serving other subversive ideologies and theologies. And once you got to know them, you would realize that they were not there for King Jesus. They were there for their own appetites and desires. And so the fact that they crept in unnoticed is a testament to their ability to disguise themselves. But it is also a, re- a rebuke to the church that whenever a church slumbers even a little bit, Imposters can enter into its ranks and corrupt the people of God, corrupting the fellowship. And that's what Jude is. It's just a lengthy rap sheet with pictures almost. He's so graphic in his description of the manner in which these men, despite their religious appearance, were actually undermining the fellowship. But mark this, and the reason why I'm bringing up Jude is to point out this very important truth. Antecedent to all this that I've described, Jude gives us this most rudimentary descriptor of these individuals in verse 4. He says that these individuals deny the only master and Lord 
Jesus Christ. Everything else is just window dressing, but that's like the chief problem that you have. And the fact that they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ is the reason why they're doing all these other things. And what are the words that he uses there to speak of the fact that Jesus is our only master and Lord? Well, the word Lord is the word that is the most common word for Lord in the New Testament, the word kudios. It speaks of one who exercises dominion and authority over others. But the first word, master, when he says only master, is the word that we've already reviewed together, and that is the word despotain. Despotain. Jesus is the despot. He's the owner. Remember, we talked about that. What is a despot, and how is it that he has this dominion and authority over a domain, his, his domain? It's because he owns it all. In the case of King Jesus, he has dominion over everything because he owns it all. And he owns his church. It's his. Nobody gets to do with it what they want to do. It's his church. Maybe someday I'll go through this a little bit more, but that particular construction in Jude 4 is what's called a Granville Sharp construction. Does anybody, does that ring a bell with anybody here? Have you ever been introduced to that? Well, we'll talk about Granville Sharp later, but... Uh, This construction is a very important construction. Only Master and Lord speak of one person, and that's Jesus Christ. These aren't two people. This is one one person. Jesus Christ is both the despotain and Lord. He has all authority, all power, all dominion. And by the way, He has the ability to exercise his authority because he does, in fact, own everything. So Jude concludes, or he comes towards the conclusion of his epistle, reminding his readers that those who conduct themselves this way in Christ's church, quoting a prophecy from Enoch, he promises that they will be judged. They will be judged. That God will execute judgment upon all to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's not just their actions, it's their words and their backtalk to the potter. Everything, everything will be judged. Brethren, you should tremble when you hear these words. And as a child of God, you don't tremble for any fear of personal condemnation, but you ought to tremble for those who stand under such condemnation because this is their future if they don't repent. Jude's message is clear. If you come into the church of Jesus Christ, again, it's his church, with your heterodoxy and heteropraxy, you will be the object of God's righteous judgment. Look, we expect the world to indulge itself in all forms of corrupt thinking and corrupt practice, but this is not the purview of the body of Christ. And those who are the disciples of Christ must never fall asleep to such a point, must never become sleepy to the point where they allow people like this to enter in, creeping in unnoticed. Ed, thank you for having us sing The Church's One Foundation. Um. We sang four verses, and it's, it's not your fault. There are only four verses. Originally, this was written, this hymn was written with seven verses, and as Ed rightly pointed out, this hymn, along with 12 other hymns, the Lyra Fidelium, 
written by Samuel Stone, 12 hymns he wrote in order to counteract doctrinal error and controversy. In fact, really what he wrote was a booklet, an exposition of the fundamentals of Christian faith, and he included hymns, 12 hymns, within this exposition. And this was all stirred over a controversy over a bishop, John Colenso, who had denied scriptural authority and had denied the doctrine of hell. And so Samuel Stone, concerned about this, wrote these hymns. I don't like it when hymn editors redact hymns. I'm going to just confess it now. I'm just going to say it, get it out of the way. If I complain about a hymn the way it's been redacted, just know I've, I've admitted this is something that I, I do. Um, I prefer that we just have the right and license to sing what verses we want to, and editors, leave the hymns alone, please. Thank you. All right, I'm done. That's my rant. Here are the two verses that are typically omitted from this hymn. And it's remarkable because these verses are one of the principal reasons why Samuel Stone wrote the hymn to begin with. Listen to this verse. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her, and false sons in her pale. Against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. Jesus taught that within the wheat of the community of God's people, the enemy plants tares. Stone is acknowledging this. Yeah, there are traitors and false sons in her midst. But thanks be to God, the church shall prevail. Then here's the next verse that is typically omitted. And this is the one that really, I have a hard time omitting this one. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. King Jesus will prevail. No matter what happens to the church in this life, King Jesus will prevail. And we ought to warn those who would enter in unnoticed and endeavor to corrupt the body of Christ. We must warn them. The king is coming again. And they should tremble in view of this reality. By the way, Ed, since I've mentioned you from the pulpit, can we do these verses next Lord's Day? For the Lord's table, we can put them up on the, on the screen. Um, in the time that remains, brethren, I just want to review a few thoughts regarding Christ's sovereignty over the church and how this impacts our relationship to the world. Therefore, evangelism and even issues like Christian nationalism. What is that? By the way, if you look up Christian nationalism, you get a variety of different definitions. Um, in the book, Jesus Justice, I address and confront and refute Christian uh, reconstructionism, which is kind of a variant of Christian nationalism. The concern that I would have and express towards all these things, as I relate in the book in chapters 7 and 8, uh, I don't really mention my books that often, but since I'm being so brief here, if you want to look into that more, you, if you have the book, look into that. But the thing that we have to keep in mind are the principles that we've already discussed. What is the church? Well, it's his body, and it is distinguished 
from the world. The church is not the world. It, it is a separate entity. It is the very body of Christ. Again, Christ is exalted above all authority. He says that he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to, in the, the one to come. So everything is covered regarding his dominion and authority. Everything. President Biden, Putin, name whatever government you wish. Every power, every authority on planet earth, he's over it all. And we serve this king as the one who has put all, who, who has under his feet the subjection of all his enemies. And he has given his head over all things to the church, Paul says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I am a citizen of the, of the United States. But before that, I'm a citizen of heaven. Before that, I'm a member of his body. This is the highest priority. This is the highest authority. There is no higher authority. And everything that I consider in this life, I must filter through that order of authority. Where his body, his bride, the sheep for whom he laid it down his life, none of these identities are given to the world or to the world governments. The United States of America is not the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Were there Christian principles in place in the drafting of the founding? Sure. And there are some principles in those founding documents that are not Christian. It's an admixture, but it's not the Bible. Again, we serve King Jesus, and this is our founding document. Let me ask you to turn to 1 Peter 2 as I bring things to close or approaching a close. First Peter 2 in verse 13. Remember in the writing of Peter's epistle, which may have been written sometime around 62-63 AD, we're just maybe a year or two away from the, the persecutions, the first official persecution of the Christian church. So Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, the following, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Let me repeat that. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by, notice the language, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as how? Bond slaves. Bond slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Here we go again. Fear God. Who do we fear? God. Honor the king. Who is the king at the time of the writing of 1 Peter? Nero. If you think you have a problem with the current president or any other president that you ever really struggled with, keep in mind Peter is writing to a people who were under the cruel and wicked dictatorship of Nero when he says, honor the king. But remember, he says, honor the king after he says, fear God, who's above all, the Almighty. Then he says this, moving forward to chapter 4, I'm sorry for skipping, 
If you go forward to chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. The persecution of the church prior to the Neronian persecutions were building up, coming in like waves. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But no, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Let me say it again. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing, again, he repeats the language, in doing what is right. What is your responsibility? What is my responsibility as we serve under the authorities that God has given to us? Peter repeated it twice. You do what is right. No matter the cost, you do what is right. And how do we define what is right? We go by the instruction manual of King Jesus. That's how. Do we obey men rather than God? Never. We must obey our Lord above all. Whatever debates and discussions people want to have about engagement in politics, keep this in mind. We are always to be about the business of doing what is right. Serving and honoring our king according to the scriptures. So, so participate in governing in government. Engage in protests if you wish, but make sure that it is the gospel that you are advancing and the glory of God that you are heralding. Because that's our chief end, is the glory of God. And if people don't know that about you, then your politics are getting mixed up into the whole mess. Brethren, I'm going to wrap it up here. Except to put a bookmark into next Lord's Day. Next Lord's Day... We're going to have the privilege of observing the Lord's table. In view of what we've considered here this morning, I want you to remember the following. There are many texts, many passages of Scripture that we often consult in order to bring us to the Lord's table and have us think about the priority of remembering Christ in his sacrifice and knowing that he's coming again for his church we read that in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Revelation 5 is another rich text to help us to think about and remember Christ in his sacrifice. Hebrews is filled with many, many passages that help us to contemplate the sacrifice of Christ. But when we come to the Gospels and we observe the Lord's Last Supper, The thing that we are reminded in those passages is the following. How many true disciples were there in the end? Not 12, 11. Judas is called by Jesus the son of perdition. When Jesus revealed that one among them would betray him, you remember how the disciples responded? They said, Lord, 
They didn't point to Judas and say, yeah, I, I, I've been watching this guy. I, it's got to be him. Nobody said that. No, they said, surely it's not I, Lord. They had no idea. They had no idea. They were surprised. But Jesus was not surprised. That's why he called him the son of perdition. And this is why when Jude writes to the church, keep this in mind as you think about the sovereignty of Christ, his omniscience over all things and his omnipotence over all things, when Jude wrote to the church regarding those certain persons who crept in unnoticed, he says, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God, of our God into licentiousness and deny our only despotain and Lord Jesus Christ, of them he says that they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. You didn't see him, you didn't notice him, but God is not surprised. They've already been marked out for condemnation. Such is the purview, the sole purview of the sovereign king. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to consider that God ordains all things and he even uses evil and even uses Satan for his own purposes, isn't it? I have to confess to you, I don't understand how all that works together, but I know it's true that God can even use evil and does use evil for a greater good. In order, in order to showcase his glory and showcase his mercy to those who receive mercy. It's a wonderful thing. And even though we don't fully understand all the details of it, we know and understand that, again, our God is indeed sovereign. You know, if you're going to close with the hymn, you should bring a hymnal with you, which I didn't do. We're going to sing a hymn, hymn number 395. Hymn number 395. 95. You know, there are many things that we can say are mysteries to us. Even the manner in which God works out his sovereign providence is certainly a mystery to us oftentimes. But all that we need to know is, is that our God is in charge and that our heart's desire ought to be that he would teach us his way. Rather than throwing out the instruction manual, our desire is to learn from it and to learn from our God who is indeed sovereignly in, in charge of everything. So consider these words. Teach me thy way, O Lord, teach me thy way. Thy guiding grace afford, teach me thy way. Help me to walk aright, more by faith, less by sight. Lead me with heavenly light. Teach me thy way. Number two, when I am sad at heart, how often do we struggle with sorrow and the pain of life? When I am sad at heart, teach me thy way. When earthly joys depart, teach me thy way. In hours of loneliness, in times of dire distress, in failure or success, teach me thy way. Then, verse 3, when doubts and fears arise, teach me thy way. When storms o'erspread the skies, teach me thy way. Shine through the cloud and rain, through sorrow, toil, and pain. Make thou my pathway plain. Teach me thy way. Long as my life shall last. Now, this is a key point. How long are we going to live? No one in this room knows. And James calls it evil for us to presume upon tomorrow. So this is a crucial confession. 
Long as my life shall last, teach me thy way. Where'er my lot be cast, teach me thy way. Until the race is run, until the journey's done, until the crown is won, teach me thy way. Brethren, prepare your heart to sing these words. These are powerful words, and they remind us of the very lessons we've been covering. We don't have to know and understand every circumstance of our life, but we do know that our Heavenly Father loves us. And all we need to do is say to to the Lord, just teach me. I just want to learn. I want to be a better disciple of Jesus each and every day. Let's stand.